In this episode, we speak with Nate Locke, managing partner and co-head of growth equity at Kane Partners. Nate has played a key role in partnering with many of the 48 platform investments and contributing to the 25 exits completed by the Kane Partners team across six funds and six co-investment vehicles. He was recognized by GrowthCap as a top 25 software investor of 2022. Nate's select transaction experience includes the sale of Chicago-based 4C Insights, MaintenanceNet, Learn.com, 3C Interactive, and the recapitalizations of Source Intelligence and My Karma. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Nate, thanks so much for joining. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Where are you dialing in from or logging in from? We are based here in Los Angeles, so in the office in Century City today. Excellent. Well, for the benefit of our audience, you know, it's interesting. In the private capital world, the name Kane Anderson is quite well known. Some folks, in particular CEOs, may not be as familiar. And then from an overview perspective, Kane Anderson is involved in a lot of different types of investments. We'll spend most of our time in the growth capital arena, which you manage or co-manage. But could you tell us a little bit about the firm overall and maybe the thing that is common throughout each of the asset classes that you manage? Yeah. So Kane Anderson, today we manage about $35 billion in alternative assets. That's across a range of different products. So in the early 2000s, everybody would have known us for energy and MLP type investments, particularly active in pipelines. Since then, the firm has scaled dramatically in some other areas. So we have a very, very serious focus in the real estate world. And this will get into how we find common ground across the strategies, but always exploiting small niches where we believe are capital underserved. And to use Rick Kane's terms, you know, he's always tried to staff professional teams in high school sports. So as an example, early 2000s, off-campus student housing on the real estate side. This was before this was a serious investment focus for many, many firms. Our now CEO, Al Rabel, built a strategy around that went from being nobody in that space to being the second largest player in that space in a matter of five, six years. Timed that really, really well, exited that kind of as the rest of the world came in. And now our real estate team is focused principally on medical office space and assisted living facilities. So always very niche focused and that ranges across real estate. Our energy group is still active. We have a senior credit team based in Chicago that's providing middle market credit to mostly sponsor back deals. And then we've got our team here in Los Angeles, which is the growth equity, which we're going to spend our time on. We also have investment strategies in alternative and clean energy. Everything from funding solar fields all the way to a transition fund where we're focused on helping companies that are currently what you would consider dirty transition to a cleaner model and seeing the valuation uplift as that happens. So lots going on in the firm, but always going to areas where we believe are relatively capital underserved, where a $35 billion firm can come with our scale and really have an impact. What's really interesting is probably the story behind how each of these groups were stood up and how they were grown over the years. And maybe we could take growth capital as an example. It seems like that may have been started in the early 2000s, from what I understand. I mean, both you and Nishida joined fairly early on. First off, how did you transition from 
being more involved in supporting Romney to entering into investing? I worked for Mitt Romney starting when he was the governor of Massachusetts. And I was a finance undergrad from the University of Utah and got the chance to go work for Mitt, who kind of is one of the godfathers of private equity. So that was really the draw there was kind of his finance background. As I worked with him on the political campaign, my job was principally raising dollars from the private equity world. So I got a very, very interesting view into, and again, this is pre-campaign finance reforms. So we raised political dollars back then a little bit differently than they're raised today. But I literally would go and sit with the heads of basically every major private equity firm in the country to raise political dollars and spend a week in their offices. You get a really good sense of culture and investment strategies. And, and I was really focused on learning through osmosis at that time and, and really kind of understanding the different ways people invested. I thought I wanted to do venture capital, quickly realized that I, I just absolutely hate losing money. The thought of making a 20x return on a deal doesn't outweigh the thought of making a 0.5x return on a deal for me. So I realized that was not a good place for me mentally to spend my time. And when I met the folks at Kane Anderson, it was a very different approach. This thought of partnering side by side with entrepreneurs, not relying on financial engineering to make the returns, but really relying on your ability to help these companies grow and partner. And it's a very optimistic segment of the private equity world. I would say venture has that same kind of optimism where you're really going out and changing things and making this big impact. And you know, we're massive job creators across our portfolio. We're hiring hundreds of people every single year. So, so it's a fun place to invest and consistently intellectually stimulating. So found myself kind of gravitating towards Ken Anderson, joined here in early 2008, and obviously been a big part of growing the strategy since then. And what did the group look like then? Was it we're going to do one-off growth equity deals, or was there a formalized fund already at that point? There was a formalized fund. And it's funny. So when Nishida and myself joined, you'd call a company and they'd say, oh, someone else called us. And it was either Summit or TA, right? It was Kane, Summit, and TA with the direct sourcing model at that time. And really, it was just the three of us. So we did have a dedicated fund. And if you look at kind of the way we we're investing, it, it really echoes how we invest today. It's typically non-control deals. So finding a way to partner with entrepreneurs from a non-control standpoint, adding value at the board level, bringing operators to the table if needed, bringing our vendor relationships to the table. There's some inherent advantages of being a $35 billion firm that we can flex that muscle a little bit with vendor relationships. And our operator network's obviously very, very extensive and hundreds of professionals across the country help us on that front. So there was a formalized fund. That fund went through a transition period where the team that was running that left. And Nishida and I started our careers. This is two years into our career. And we inherited a portfolio of 14 companies, many of which were not in the best positions. And our job was really to get our investors a positive return based on those companies that we had in that portfolio and salvage those relationships and turn that around. So Nishida and myself both learned this business a bit backwards, where we learned to exit the companies before we were fully focused on getting into them. And that's really shaped the way that we built Kane Partners to what it is today, where we learned quickly the types of entrepreneurs that you're going to have a hard time working with over time and exiting those businesses if you're a non-control investor. We learned some mistakes to avoid early on. And mostly what we learned is the process of monetizing these businesses is a bit unique in our world and at the phase. And if you understand it and play that well, it's a huge advantage as far as balancing a risk-return profile in, in a portfolio. But there's some mistakes that you really need to avoid in that process as well. And there's some unique dynamics about how you have to work with the entrepreneurs in those moments. 
So it seems like you were fairly young at the time when you first came on, and it seems like your group overall is on the younger side. Is that part of your model? Like, I mean, you saw it work well, I guess, and the folks there on the board probably said, hey, you know, this is actually working quite well, where we take younger, really talented folks and give them a lot of responsibility. Is that kind of how your group operates? It is, and, and really across Kane Anderson. So we are a very entrepreneurial firm. So you mentioned how each of these groups has kind of stood up. That's been driven by individuals who start those groups and then grow them. And Kane Anderson, think of it as just a kind of wonderful incubator for entrepreneurial people in our world to come in and start strategies and grow them and, and get the support they need from the broader firm. So yeah, especially back then, we're a relatively young group. I appreciate you referring to me as anything remotely young today. But it is part of it. We we want young, hungry people who come in and, and want to have an impact. We've always had to understand that because we are young, we've had to balance that with some serious operating talent and entrepreneurs that we've worked with historically. So we supplement ourselves with just world-class talent on the operating side. And I think with that, we also have a partner, Dave Walsh, who's been with us this whole time as well, who built and sold multiple companies themselves, is an entrepreneur and has provided some guidance as we go. But you know, since then been able to build this into a very, very interesting and unique team. And yes, we'd still skew relatively young, but if you look at the deal experience, there's not that many people who've been this focused on one segment of the market for 15 years like we have. Yeah, let's move into your investments and your investment process. I noticed you have an investment in CloudBreak Health. I know Jamie Edwards from like 15, 20 years ago, yeah. fantastic person, very talented individual. Tell us about your process for identifying and selecting investment opportunities? Yeah, so we are very, very focused on the people side of the equation early on as we source deals. So we work under what you would consider broad thesis. So we will come up with a thesis, so something like business process automation, right? We believe and we continue to invest behind this thesis that companies will continue to outsource non-core functions. When was the last time you heard about a company handling their own payroll? Well, no one does, they outsource that, right? We believe that that is going to continue to expand. We had an investment in a company called Concera, which was outsourcing kind of your finance and accounting department. Cloudbreak Health is a great example. Hospitals were providing interpretation in-house, and it was very expensive for them to hire and maintain interpreters. And this is a cost center for the healthcare system in our country. So it's government mandated that you have to provide interpretation services, and you cannot bill that back to the patient. So how did we solve this problem with Jamie? Well, we created essentially a digital network of interpreters for basically every language that you could possibly imagine being spoken in a hospital. So rather than a hospital having to staff that themselves or bring in an interpreter, we essentially have what today are just iPad pros sitting on a pole that rolls around the hospital with buttons for your top languages. And you immediately can access interpreters who are trained at a higher level than anybody else. The quality is absolutely fantastic. The user experience is great. So for pretty much anything short of life-threatening experiences in a hospital, at this point, using an interpreter over the CloudBreak network is the preferred way to do it. For the benefit of the CEOs in our audience that are contemplating a growth capital round, maybe they're currently in the midst of deciding between investment firms, why does Kane Anderson usually win over its, I guess, competitors or comparable firms? Yeah, so you'll see we're consistently named on founder-friendly lists out there, very entrepreneur-centric. We have a network now of entrepreneurs who have built and sold companies with us who are our best references, and we encourage people to call literally any of them. 
So it starts with that partnership mentality. And this again goes back to Kane Anderson in general is we have this maniacal focus on partnership and, and how we work with entrepreneurs. And I think we're very sensitive to the fact that these companies are something very, very special to the entrepreneurs who are typically bootstrappers that we work with. And no company is perfect. It's very easy from a private equity standpoint to come in and start pointing out all the things that are wrong with a business because there will always be things that aren't perfect with a company. I think having a bit of sensitivity to the fact that, you know, these entrepreneurs, you know, these men and women have been blood, sweat and tears creating these businesses, like probably not the best thing to do. The first thing you meet them to start pointing out things that you don't like about the company, right? So we spend a lot of time with the people and getting to know them. And when I say that, it's like, you know, I want to go to dinner with your spouse as well. I want to understand what your family life looks like. I want to understand you as a person and more importantly, how you interact with team members on your team. So we start with the people working under a broad thesis. And when we know we're in a space where we have a thesis, we believe in and we find those people. You know, it's pretty easy over time to show them the value out of Kane Anderson and what that means to be a partner with us. So we'll build that out and we'll bring in entrepreneurs that have worked with us in the process to show them. Have you had some cuspy situations where you weren't sure whether or not an investment is the right one? You didn't necessarily have 100% confidence, but then the CEO gave you the confidence just by understanding who she or he was and is. Great example for this. So we have a company called Ticket Manager. Ticket Manager, think of it as a software product that manages corporate ticket assets. So people don't think about businesses like Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Verizon, AT&T. These businesses have literally tens of millions of dollars of assets on their balance sheet that need to be treated like cash in a lot of ways, because historically, there's all sorts of fun news you can read about corporate leaders using tickets as slush funds and doing things they shouldn't do with them. So we provide a software platform for that. At first glance, I was like, yeah, that's pretty interesting. Then I met the CEO, Tony Knopf. So Tony and I started having lunches together, getting to know each other a little bit. And immediately, I started to understand his vision for the company and his vision for the company, which, by the way, is kind of where we are today. But back then, was so much bigger than that. And, and so think of that company today as an asset management firm. We manage a billion three in corporate ticket assets. We're literally changing the face of how teams and venues interact with corporations. So historically, even until three years ago, if you were a corporation, you bought season tickets, you owned a suite at the crypto.com center, for example, here in Los Angeles, it was against your agreements for you to resell those tickets. And so what happened is on average, a corporation will waste about 40% of their tickets. If it's Major League Baseball, where there's tons of home games, it's going to be even greater than that. So this is kind of a massive dollar waste. And what we helped really change from an industry perspective, and this was all Tony's vision that he shared long ago, was the fact that we can get teams to embrace this reselling market for corporate tickets if, if it's done in a way where they can control the outcome. So teams now are encouraging their corporate season ticket holders to use their tickets more efficiently recoup their dollars when they don't use them so they are happier and more likely to renew those season ticket packages. And so we're looking at growing maybe over a billion dollars in additional tickets this year as teams make that change. So this is a tectonic shift in an industry that on first glance kind of felt like a spot solution that wasn't that interesting. And Tony and sharing his vision and you know he is a leader of very, very high morals was able to help us understand that vision. And I think we did a good job of taking the time to understand that and help him in a way where we could embrace that vision and, and provide resources to get there quicker. Are there certain areas today that you're really excited about? It, it's interesting to think about the example you just provided, because 
I'd be surprised if you had that thesis or have already thought about tickets, corporate <laughs> tickets. That one did not come from a top-down thesis for sure. <laughs> right. So what's most exciting to you today? It's funny. We were screaming from the rooftops about the supply chain long before COVID hit, and that continues to be one of our principal focuses. There's strange stuff happening. Even this week in supply chain, you have spot prices on moving freight plummeting at the same time. The cost structure for these shipping companies has gone dramatically up. Like, like there's problems in the supply chain in this country, and it continues to be one of our principal focuses. Across the last six, seven years, we've invested close to $300 million across 14 companies that are solving problems in that space. It will continue to probably be a principal focus through our new fund, Fund 5, we're operating out of right now. COVID took things that we thought and made them clear to the entire world. And unfortunately, like these solutions are not short-term problems. These are things that are going to take decades to fix and make more efficient. And so it'll continue to be a core thesis we work under. You'd just be shocked to see how much still operates on clipboards and paper or pencil. Going through a customs clearing process for certain freight, you're still using fax machines. We got to move on. So technology is going to play a serious role in that. Now, we're coming up on time, but I do like to end on a couple more personal questions. The first one is, can you tell us about a book that has had an impact on you or simply provide a, a book recommendation? I've read a lot of good books lately that I think have an impact. But if I think like books like Psychology of Money, I think that was really interesting. The Road to Freedom has a really interesting scientific approach to the happiness and how earned success causes that happiness. But I think if I think back to what I've read that has most impacted me, I, I went through this strange phase 10 years ago, probably, where I realized that I hadn't really read much from all these philosophers you hear about. So Socrates, Thoreau, Emerson, Locke, like, and I thought I should read some of this stuff to understand why these are people that are held in such high regard. So I started reading through that. And Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance is probably one of the most impactful things I've read and something that I think about more today than probably anything I've ever read. And right now, my kids, if they were listening, would be rolling their eyes because they've grown up hearing about the hobgoblin of little minds. Foolish consistency is a term that I use constantly through my life right now. And even raising kids, it's like, you know, they get frustrated with where they are in anything. It's like, well, are you in a foolish consistency? Because that's the hobgoblin of little mind. And so it's been something that has kind of shaped the way I address times in my own personal life where I feel maybe stagnant or feel like I need to make more progress. So yeah, if anybody has not read Self-Reliance, I think it's a phenomenal read. It's relatively short and do it at a time when you have some time to actually think about what you're reading, because it's not an easy read. But yeah, just phenomenal writing. And, and after I read that, I think I had a greater appreciation for why Emerson is still a name that we all know. Great answer. Okay, final question is, can you tell us about a leader that you particularly admire? And this leader could be across any domain or, or field of expertise. Such an interesting question, because one of the just incredible things about our jobs in growth equity is that we spend our entire lives with dynamic leaders. So I could pick apart any of a hundred people I know that that I would tell you something about them that I think is phenomenal. I think would maybe be remiss in, in a moment like this, not to mention Rick Kane, the founder of Kane Anderson. As a leader, he has built this business on this concept of do the right thing. And I've seen him and our firm across a decade and a half now make multiple decisions that were not in the best interest of this firm, but it was because we believed it was the right thing. And more interestingly, like when you believe you're doing the right thing, having a knowledge that that may not feel like the right thing to other people. So how do you manage that? How do you guide anything, whether it be a company or a person or an entity through a tough decision where 
you're trying to make that decision based on what morally you believe is the right thing to do for different constituents. It's something that, again, has framed how we think about our business today. And I think Rick has obviously been just wildly successful based on that core thesis that he's operated under. I meant to ask earlier, I I hope you don't mind. I have one last question. I want to just hear a little bit about ESG and what the firm's level of involvement is in, in ESG. It's a massive push inside the firm. So obviously on on the growth equity side, we've made a few investments in that space. So we had a company in kind of supply chain and conflict minerals reporting. So we do a little bit on this side, but generally software companies are are not changing that much from a pollution perspective. On the energy side, this is a massive effort for us. And you should top on with our energy guys to talk through because they'll be much more eloquent how they describe it. But you know, I mentioned out there that there's a lot of companies that say maybe relying on coal for energy and generation right now. If you can help them transition to a cleaner energy path, you're having a massive effect on the environment. You're having a phenomenal impact for your LPs because there is valuation uplift as, as companies go from dirty to clean. It's really a win-win scenario. So that's, that's one area we're focused on. Petroleum products will always be a part of our lives here. Like It's not going to phase out. Look at the microphone you're speaking through right now. There's petroleum products in that, right? Like being cognizant of that and helping to continue to support that industry in a clean manner where we get better and better on that side, while at the same time supporting clean energy investments on the other side, I think is just a really, really realistic and fantastic approach to that. Our firm, again, we focus on it at various levels and even internally making efforts. So yeah, we'll continue to be a big part of what we do here. We're pretty uniquely positioned to have a strong impact, which I think shocks people when they hear that oh, a firm that you know still has an energy investment practice is in that position. But if it's not us, who else? If it's not the people who are on the ground doing it today, I think it's very hard for an outsider to, to make an impact. Well, Nate, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a great conversation that I know our audience will find very insightful. Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on and nice spending some time with you. 